I've sort of been surprised, but maybe not so much. You know, a lot of the folks that come to our ministries, and, I, and a lot, particularly in the African-American community, they, they, they have an experience of, of Christ in the Scripture. Often it's in the, maybe they're, they're sort of Pentecostal, Baptist, <laughs> whatever it is. But, you know, they, they, they know about Jesus, and a lot of them know He's the solution. They just don't they don't have the they don't have the tools, they don't have the power, they don't have the church. They don't have the church. So, you know, in my own mind, the the the, the real sort of hope in all this is that people we help, that some of them will will see the love of Christ in it and want that something more. You know, something more than just their temporal needs met, but actually pursue a life in Christ in the Orthodox Church. And we've, we've seen that with some folks. As a matter of fact, the Focus Center in Pittsburgh has started a church right at the, right at the center with uh, Father Paul Abinath. He's an amazing guy. You should have him down here for a retreat sometime. He, uh, he actually was related to Alf, Ralph Abernathy. He's half African-American and half Syrian. And he's a, he's a powerful preacher, and they've started this mission under Bishop Thomas St. Moses the Black Orthodox Church right in the worst part of the inner city of Pittsburgh. And I, I think great things are going to come to that, come from that as time goes on. Well, you know, I know that I saw a few people taking notes. It's, it's very hard to take notes at these things, especially when you're listening to me. And I know those notes end up vanishing into the ether usually over time. And I have done handouts with this, but the truth of the matter is, you know, when I told Father Philip I'm more of a preacher than a, a teacher, it, you know, you know, the, there's a lot of this is about how does it make you feel. I know that sounds silly almost, but, but what the difference between a teacher and a preacher is a, a teacher is trying to cultivate and increase your knowledge about God, and a preacher is trying to call you to do something. That's one of the real differences. That's why in homilies often we're asked to make a decision, you know, to com commit to the fast, commit to the season, commit to... We're, we're, we're being appealed to, and I'm appealing to you, read the Sermon on the Mount. You know, I would encourage every one of you to read the Sermon on the Mount from start to finish, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, during this Lent. It doesn't take that long. Read the Beatitudes daily. Make it a part of your life because it, it is the roadmap. It is the roadmap to the kingdom of heaven. And so what I am doing now is just, this is all the handouts you're going to get. And it's front and back, and it's a little tiny summary. <laughs> it's manageable. But if you wanted to keep it in your Bible, I had some people tell me they keep it on their altar where they pray, it, it, it's, it's a way to just remind yourself of what these Beatitudes mean. And what I want to do is I want us to read this like responsively, uh, responsively. And so if you would stand, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the first line, and then you read the reward. So I'll read, blessed are the poor in spirit, and then you read, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I'll probably read that with you too. And then I'll read the little comment. And this is the red letter edition, by the way. So 
you know, no, we're not cutting it short for anyone or not giving you the cheap version. All right. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit. For the Recognize your spiritual poverty, your need for God. Step two, blessed are those who mourn. Acknowledge your spiritual poverty with genuine sorrow. Step three, blessed are the meek. Submit your will to the will of God. Repent and follow Him. Step four, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Allow God to redirect your desires towards what is good. Continue to work on your own soul and begin to serve and impact others. Step five, blessed are the merciful. As you have been shown mercy, show mercy, especially forgive. Step six, blessed are the pure in heart. Stay focused. Give thanks. God is at work in your life in all things. Step seven, blessed are the peacemakers. Seek peace with others. You will be recognized as a Christian. Step eight, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of All who climb this staircase, who take this journey, will be tested and will suffer, but the reward is the kingdom of heaven itself. All right. <clears throat> You know, it's, I'm going to be referring a lot back to last night. And, you know, it's, so the, that talk last night's very important, but that's it in a nutshell, <laughs> what we just read right there. It is a progression. It is a journey. It is a climb. It's not a collection of nice little proverbs from Jesus. One builds on the other. You know, and I, a couple of things that I, at least one thing for sure that I wanted to make sure because I didn't say it last night, it's, it's not like, okay, I finished step one, now I can go to step two. You never, you never stop step, step one. It would be like, and he's going to use the example of building a house at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, so I'll use that. If you, if you laid a foundation and said, all right, we're ready to start framing, we don't need the foundation anymore, it makes no sense. And the fact of the matter is that the greatest of all the saints never forgot their need to acknowledge their spiritual poverty before God. I was watching a video on the life of St. Anthony the Great. And at the end of his life, when he was passing from this life to the next, his disciples, some of the monks that were living, were going in and checking on him. And they, they went in at one point and he was weeping weeping and they said father anthony you know what what can we do to console you what's wrong and he said i'm near the end of my life and i've only begun to repent you see he never forgot step one and it's almost like we're we're doing the truth of the matter is and difficulties we're kind of doing it all at the same time but, but many times we have to focus on certain of these steps where maybe we are principally in our overall journey. And of course, at the end of this section, at the end of that progression, 
Again, demonstrating that the Sermon on the Mount is not this collection of Proverbs. It's not this collection of wise sayings. That the, the result of taking the journey is that you will be salt and light. As soon as he finishes the beatitude, he says, You are the salt of the, of the earth. You are the light of the world. And if you stop, you, you lose your savor. <laughs> you lose your flavor. And if you stop, or if you cover it, the light goes dim. The truth is, if you put a bushel basket and it's woven tight enough over a light, what happens to the light? It goes out. It goes out. So, we begin now with chapter 2. In this part, it's entitled, What Christ Expects Along the Way. An Attitude of Righteousness without hypocrisy. You know, the church originally, does anybody know what the church was called in the book of Acts? The way. The way. See, I have a well-taught group here. As many of you know, the followers of Jesus Christ were first called Christians in Antioch in the 11th chapter of Acts. But it was in all likelihood a derisive term that was given to the Christians by the Romans. Those Christians. But we embraced it. We embraced the derisive term. But do you know that what the Christians were called before that? Yes, you do. The way. A name possibly given to them by the Jews, but more likely given to them by themselves. They were called the way. Jesus did say, I am the way. And, and being united to Him and taking this path of the Beatitudes is the way. That is the way. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father except through Me. While on the road to Damascus and before the label Christian given by the Romans, we read, Then Saul, that's Paul, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were on the way, whether men or women who were of the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And of course we know on that road to Damascus is when he saw the, the, the kingdom of God in power, only he wasn't prepared to see it. So as where James, Peter, James, and John could look upon it, it struck Paul down and blind. And again in Acts 19, But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, some, some, but spoke, okay, let me read that over. My wife told me to slow down, so I'm going to try to slow down. It's just I know I have a lot to cover, so. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude. And in Acts 19 again, And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. In Acts 22, I persecuted this way, this is Paul talking, I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. And again in Acts 24, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, that was the Jews called them a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which were written in the law and the prophets. And when Paul was, was taken before Felix, 
We read these words in the context of that account. But when Felix heard these things, having a more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings. You know, so the, the, the early Christians sort of knew they were on a journey. <laughs> they knew they were climbing a ladder. They knew they were going on a staircase. And the Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, really is the, the essence, the epitome of Christ's instruction about the way. Christians, the people of the way, are followers of both the power and the program. And I spoke about this last night. The power is Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And the program is summarized and inaugurated in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In the first part, using the Beatitudes as preached by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, we defined eight steps, an eight-step program, if you will, a program designed by Jesus who takes us by the hand, walks with us on the journey to heaven, leading us to God the Father, and He does so by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we will see today in this section, Matthew 5, verse 17 to 48, that Christ has very definite expectations for us as we take the steps. You know there is nothing wrong with expectations, right? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with expectations. Spouses have expectations of each other. Parents have expectations of their children. Communities have expectations. Employers have expectations and so forth. Expectations can create a moral boundary particularly in the Christian life, for godliness and a Christ-like behavior. You know, I didn't do this much, but I, I learned it from Father John Braun. And I, is Joel here? Is he? Or no, Joel's not here. But oh, oh, there he is back there. I don't know whether you remember this or not, but one of the first times he was going out, and I don't know whether it was friends or what, we were in Riverside, and, uh, you know, it was, it was one of those where he got permission, but I was concerned about it. <laughs> And so as he was getting ready to leave, I said, Joel, I want you, when you, go, when you go out tonight, I want you to remember what your last name is. And he kind of looked at me. Do you remember that at all? <laughs> you know what? My dad told me many a time to remember that I was a Finley because being a Finley meant something. It meant a certain expectation. It meant a certain set of behaviors. It meant a certain reputation. You know, it, it, and it, was a, it, it was something that had been carried for generations as, that, as it were. So I didn't want Joel to forget who he was. And you know, Christians sometimes forget who they are. They forget who they are. The third commandment says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. This is not so much about cursing, although I'm not giving you permission to curse. It's not about cursing as it is about calling yourself a Christian. Or in the Old Testament, uh, you know, a follower of Yahweh. <laughs> it's about taking on that name. You know, when you call yourself a Christian, you're, you, you are acknowledging that you belong to Christ. And there's lots of people that call themselves a Christian and take the name vainly. 
And I already mentioned the eight steps are never com fully completed in this life, certainly not for most of us, and probably for none of us. As we move upward, we continue to work on the preceding steps. The one who has become a peacemaker, as I said when I began, can never forget his need for God. He can never forget his spiritual poverty. So we're going to the first part of chapter 5, verse 17, and we're going to read about Christ. This little subtitle in the Orthodox Study Bible is Christ Fulfilling the Law. And he says this in verse 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until the law is all fulfilled. Whoever therefore speaks one to one of the whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments, who teaches men's souls shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great into the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless, and this is very important, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. You can't approach the law simply as the keeping of rules and not do it from the heart and be successful. And neither can you approach the Beatitudes, which really are more directed at the inner man, as some form or ritual you're following, and that if you just do it outwardly and keep all the rules, everything's fine. It won't produce. Your righteousness has to exceed theirs. And I think what he's saying is it has to be internal, not external. It has to be from the heart, not a form. You know, a jot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and a tittle is the smallest stroke used in writing Hebrew. It's those, like he's saying, not one eye and not even the dot over the eye <laughs> will pass from the law. And people, Jesus couples action with words when he says, Blessed is he who both does and teaches. You know, that scripture is actually read on Sunday of the Holy Fathers, but it's part of the Sermon on the Mount. And that what he's saying is if you're going to do these steps, you have to approach it differently from just being a law keeper. And your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Has to exceed it, but it also has to manifest. It has to manifest itself both externally and internally. It has to be characterized also by integrity. Let's go to the next section, which is the subtitle in the Orthodox Study Bible. Again, is murder begins in the heart. <coughs> you have heard it said of old, "You shall not murder," and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now, I want you to think about his words. You remember they've gone away from the multitude. Jesus has sat down on the mountain. He's gathered his disciples around him. And he said, you heard it said of old, thou shalt not murder. Who said that? 
Who said thou shalt not murder? That was given by God in the ten. But then he said, but I say, what's his claim? <laughs> he, he, he from the very beginning is proclaiming his divinity. You heard it said then, but I say now. Why? Because I'm the one that said it in the first place. I'm the one that gave Moses the law. If you ever see an icon of the giving of the Ten Commandments, who's handing the tablets to Moses? It's Jesus. You heard it said of, oh, I'm here now. I'm here now. And I'm telling you that it's more than just that you didn't actually kill anybody. I say to you, whoever's angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift. Leave it there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid every penny. You know, you know, the, uh, you know there was, there's a part of this, I think he's speaking in particular to his Jewish context. Because if a Jew called another Jew a fool, do you know what he was calling him? An atheist. An unbeliever. Because in the Psalms we read, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God don't call your brother an unbeliever. You, you're making yourself a judge. You, you need to work on your own righteousness, and your righteousness has to be superior to the righteousness of the Pharisees. Raka means vain, empty, derived from spit. <laughs> so that's certainly a derogatory term. Fool and atheist. And you know, make peace with your adversary. You don't have to win at everything. You don't have to be right about everything. Make peace. All right. You know, I'm, I'm a little lost in my PowerPoint, but I'm not going to worry about it because, you know, it's related, but nevertheless, we'll press on. So the, uh, the next part, because we're reading the sermon, and as I said last night, when I read from the Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount, that's the best part. And we may review this in just a second. So the next part, he talks about adultery. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, there it is again. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it would be more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand has caused you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perishes than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And again, I said last night, he's, he's using hyperbole, you know, or we'd all be blind amputees. <laughs> 
But the, the, the point is, you know, don't let anything come between you and the righteousness that you're pursuing. Don't let anything come between you and God. And of course, here again, it's, you have heard it said of old, but I say. And you know, I think it's, I think it's interesting. He could have illustrated this with every commandment in a way, but he picked these two. These, you know, I, I was noticing, uh, and I've noticed it before, it just struck me more this year. You know, when we read the genealogy, the Sunday before Christmas, when they come, you know, it says, who, when it mentions David, there's this little parenthetical statement that says, who committed adultery with the wife of Uriah the Hittite and had him slain. It just adds it to the genealogy of Christ. Murder and adultery. And you know, it didn't, it didn't start with just an act, did it? He was looking over the balcony <laughs> and lusting after Uriah's wife. And we don't know how long that went on. And Uriah's death was no accident. It was plotted. It was plotted. So, you know, in, in, in a way, these, these, are, these are two very powerful commandments that he's used as an analogy. Look, even your father David failed in this area because he didn't guard his heart. And so he fell into the act itself. Continuing on in Matthew 30, in Matthew uh, verse 31 of chapter 5, we read, Marriage is sacred and binding. Furthermore, it has been said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual morality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. You know, this is a tough scripture for a lot of us. We, you know, we, 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 we suffer from this even in our churches. But, you know, the, the scriptures does seem to allow divorce, and certainly the church has interpreted that way, uh, because it allows it, you know, up to a point, and within reason, and hopefully with every effort made towards reconcil reconciliation. But I, I think in the context of this, what he's really talking about is this keeping of the outward law rather than keeping it from the heart. I think what he's saying is, look, just because it's legal, just because you can get a certificate of divorce doesn't mean you should. It doesn't mean you can. It doesn't, it doesn't free you from the consequences of then pursuing things that are inappropriate because now you've dispensed with your wife. And by the way, in Jesus' time, only a man could get divorced. Only a man could divorce his wife. It wasn't the other way around. So if a man was tired of this wife and maybe had his eye on someone else, that's the adultery, right? He could, he could get away with it legally. You know, there's a lot of things in our culture that are legal, that are lawful, but are not right. So in the context there, he's saying the same thing. Are you, are you acting just externally? Or is your righteousness exceeding the righteousness of the Pharisee? 
So we have to pursue righteousness without hypocrisy in order. You're not even going to take step one, really. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You're not going to recognize your spiritual poverty if you're just going through the outward motions of it. Yes, it has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. It has to manifest itself both externally and internally. It has to be characterized by integrity. Say what you mean and mean what you say. It has to reveal itself by unconditional love. And it has to lead to perfection. All right. I'm going to continue reading here. It says, uh, Jesus, you know, this could, again, as I said, apply to all the commandments. But the next subtitle in the section is Jesus Forbids Oath. And he says this. And this is really kind of the integrity Again, you have heard that it was said of old, You shall not bear false witness, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, Do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is His footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You know, I, you know, I, I hear a lot of cursing and swearing at St. Herman's because <laughs> those are the folks we're working with. But, uh, you know, I've heard it all my life to one degree or another. You know, and we like to swear on things that we, that we have no power over. <laughs> have you ever heard somebody say, I'll swear on my mother's grave? You ever heard that? Well, your mother's grave belongs to your mother. It doesn't belong to you. You know, what does that give you? And of course, there's scriptures about swearing, you know, again, by the temple, the throne, all these things. Jesus says, Let, have integrity. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's part of righteousness without hypocrisy, which has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and must be manifest both externally and internally and characterized by integrity you know the guys at the house if they're hearing me say this constantly say what you mean and mean what you say you know if they say it's thanksgiving and they say you know my sister's invited me to come over i hadn't seen her we've been alienated but she's asked me to come to thanksgiving dinner can i go and i always say sign the book tell the house manager leave when you say come back when you say come back sober let your yes be yes, your no be no. Mean what you say and say what you mean, and it's all good. But it, you know that they, 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 just because they leave the property doesn't mean now they have license to go do whatever they do, or they're not going to continue on the path to their well-being. I'll tell you what else too. When sometimes when I have a confrontational situation, or I know a guy's you know done something that he shouldn't. If he starts swearing to me, what do you think? What do you think I'm thinking? He's lying. If the swearing starts, the lying has already begun. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Righteousness is revealed in unconditional love. Go the second mile to subhead in this chapter. I'm on verse 38. You have heard that it was said, 
an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him take your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow, from you, for who wants to borrow from you, do not turn him away. You know, this is very radical in our culture. And it, it's exactly the opposite of the street justice that I deal with every day. So he's saying we have to show a kind of unconditional love even to people that are mistreating us. You know, that's part of the, the proper... You're not going to be successful on the journey to heaven if you don't try to exercise this kind of love. You know, this is a little aside, but I've, I've learned something about this passage that I never knew till I went to St. Herman's. It, you know, if you turn the other cheek... Yes, it's possible you're going to get hit. I've been there five years. I've had people ready to just pounce on me. <laughs> and what I've discovered is, is that if you do this, it's very disarming. If a person starts getting loud and raising his voice, and I was in here before that guy, and he cut in line in front of me, and there's cursing and swearing, I start talking real soft. I just, I said, look, brother, we're going to have peace in here. We're going to have a peaceful meal. And if they put up their fist, a lot of times, I'll, put, I'll just drop my arms and take a step toward them. And I'll say, look, you know, this isn't a solution. You know, this isn't, and I mean, so far I've been lucky. <laughs> I, I may get just creamed one day, but, but the, the fact of the matter is, Jesus is not saying, let, let just allow yourself to have the heck beat out of you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't mirror their evil. Don't mirror their yelling. Don't mirror their cursing. Don't mirror their swearing. Don't mirror their, their fists. If you, if you mirror it, it's going to escalate every time. And I see that all the time. You know, it might start with a, a little push on the shoulder, and then a little push harder back, and then a little push, and then it's a fight. And then it's a fight. Je Jesus is, is giving you a way to disarm it, and even if it doesn't produce peace, you preserved righteousness. You've stayed on the path. You've stayed. You didn't get, you may have gotten knocked to the floor, but you didn't get knocked down the stairway to heaven. Love your enemies, Jesus said. And this really starts to talk about that the path leads to perfection. In verse 43 we read, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who who spitefully use you and persecute you. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. You know, Jesus practiced what he preached. Do this that you may be 
sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do that? We all love people that love us, don't we? (laughs) And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax gatherers do so? Therefore, listen to this, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, you know, it's almost... It does a little contradiction thing in my mind to think that, that I always have to lay hold of my poverty of spirit. But, but the fact of the matter is constantly doing that does lead to perfection. I think most of us would say, kind of in honesty, I can never be perfect. <laughs> you know, I'm never going to be sinless. I'm ne- I mean, he's not, he's not, you know, dis- disputing our reality, but I will tell you this, Jesus believes more about you than you believe about yourself. He he believes everything is possible for you. He believes it. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they have so much regard and they hold humanity in so much value and they know what they looked like when they created them in the garden. They knew the possibility of perfection so much so that He was not content to leave us in our darkness and misery. He came to get us. Why? Because He knew what we could be. It's a good thing to believe that you can achieve perfection if you approach that belief with an acknowledgement of your poverty of spirit and your need for God. And it is, it is both part of the journey and something you do, and it is also part of the sacramental life. You know, today in the liturgy, those of you that were there, we took perfection into our very being when we receive the Eucharist. We took it right into our being, into our body and soul. You know, the, the, the folks I work with really aren't that much different from many of us because everybody that comes to St. Herman seeking shelter, even once you kind of peel back the machoism and whatever else is going on, they all believe they're defeated. They all believe they're hopeless. They all believe they're crushed. They all believe it's not getting better. They've forgotten that they're men and women created in the image of God. But we, we forget it too, don't we? I mean, don't we? Jesus has high hopes for us. He believes there's great possibility for us. So I'm going to kind of conclude. This is, I'm actually doing parts two and three. <laughs> You're getting a two for one deal. You'll get a two for one deal this afternoon. <laughs> but uh, 
but I'm, I'm skipping ahead a little bit to the conclusion so I can go ahead and start in this next part and I, I will have to move a little faster. But the simple fact of the matter is he gave us the steps. He said, this is how you become salt and light. And in order to do it, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness and Pharisees. You've got you to keep my sayings from the heart. You've got to keep the law from the heart. You've got to love your enemies. You've got to do what's right, not what's legal. <laughs> and, 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 and don't think I'm giving you something as pos it's impossible. You can do it. You can do it. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. For the, the third part is about really staying in shape for the journey. Uh, you know, if you go to a health club, one of the machines they have there is a stair climber. Right? <laughs> you know, and that can be hard to do at first. You have to put it on a light setting, you know, where it's like this. <laughs> and, you know, and then, then hopefully, that, but if you overdo it and crank it up too hard, it's like, oh, man. You know, because why? You're out of shape. You're out of shape. And so Jesus gives us the plan, the eight steps. He tells us what our attitude has got to be. And then he said, okay, you're going to start climbing. These, I'm going to give you three exercises to stay in shape. And you have to do these exercises in order to continue on the journey. These are three exercises, three discipline. You know, discipline, these words get used interchangeably, but in some ways discipline is a kind of training that corrects, molds, or perfects the mental faculties or moral character, whereas exercise is something performed in practice in order to develop, improve, or display a specific capability or skill. It's kind of a, it's a repetitive thing. It, it's, a, it's a discipline and it's a repetition in order that we can develop skill. Before I get into the text on prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, and we now are in part three, I want to tell you a little story about my dad. And it, I'm telling it because it illustrates the point of learning an exercise, of doing a repetitive discipline. In 1989, my father preached his last sermon at Trinity Baptist Church in McAllister, Oklahoma. He was there for 38 years, which is almost a miracle in a Baptist church. In all those years, I had never heard him one time mention his wartime experience. Growing up, I only remember him talking about it one time through clenched teeth. Much of what he told me, he told me after he retired. I never heard him mention his D-Day experience until this day, his final address at their, as their pastor. And he really didn't talk about it then. He just alluded to it. The faithful there all knew he was a veteran. They all knew he'd been on the D-Day invasion. They all knew he went in on Omaha Beach in the morning. They knew bits and pieces of the story. And they knew that he had changed his life. And he started his sermon like this, and it's, I'm paraphrasing, but it's pretty close. He said, in, in 1944, I was stationed in Liverpool, England, a second lieutenant getting ready to board ships for the Normandy invasion. 
I boarded a destroyer. We sailed across the English Channel. They lowered ropes over the side of that destroyer. We climbed down with our men into a Higgins boat, me and a captain. The Higgins boat set itself towards Omaha Beach. As we arrived, it was clear the beach hadn't been taken. We circled and circled, and finally we landed. And four days later, boom! My whole life was changed. He was a good preacher. <laughs> and he said, but then he didn't really want to talk about any more of it. It was changed for the good. It was changed for God. It was changed for a new life. I couldn't live the way I had lived before. I couldn't live that way anymore. What he didn't tell was that part of the story after the Higgins boat hit the beach. It landed just short of the beach. They finally, the captain said, we got to kick down the door. They kicked down the door. They were in a tide pool. He said they ran out. We looked this way, and everybody in that one got mowed down. We looked over this way, and it got hit by a mortar. Everybody was dead. An amphibious tank came up right beside me, and it got hit, and men were coming out on fire. There were only dead bodies on the beach, and we were laying in the water. Forty men that got out of their boat. And there was only one guy in the Higgins boat that had seen any combat, and it wasn't my dad, it was the captain. And a mortar hit behind them. And the captain said, Lieutenant, in two rounds, we're dead. He knew they were sighting it in. Two rounds, we're dead. Eight steps, pitch and roll. Eight steps, pitch and roll. You start shouting it, start shouting. When I say go, we go. We're running, we're not staying here. So my dad shouted, eight steps, pitch and roll, eight steps, pitch and roll. And, they, and the captain said, go. And they got up and they ran. Eight steps, dive, roll on the ground, get back up. Eight more steps because they were taught in boot camp that a German sharpshooter, would, you would be dead on your ninth step. And he said, the guys that ran straight got killed. And the guys that laid down got killed. But the guys that did the drill, eight steps, pitch, and roll, survived. Eight steps, pitch, and roll. Eight steps, kind of interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. I'm sure this drill seemed ridiculous and abusive when he was in boot camp. It probably seemed punitive. And when performed over and over in boot camp, it must have just been a drudgery. But in time of war, it was life-saving. Does prayer fasting and almsgiving ever seem like a drudgery? <laughs> Does it ever seem like a drill? Look, let me just tell you, brothers and sisters, this is not a drill. This is not a drill. We are at war. And the devil is shooting at us. And he does get us in his sights. And the drill, the life-saving drill that will get you out of the inferno to safety is prayer, fasting, 
and almsgiving. And if you don't do the drill, you, you're an easy target. You're easy prey. The spiritual disciplines of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving are necessary to salvation. That is, they are life-saving. The spiritual disciplines of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving are necessary to keeping Christ's commandments from the heart. They're necessary to preserving that attitude, and they're necessary to doing the eight steps. Now look, don't, don't anybody go out and say that I said, well, if you just pray fast and give alms, you'll be saved. Not apart from Jesus, you won't be. Jesus is the Savior. He, he wants us to do this so we stay close to Him. <laughs> so we stay united to Him. So we stay participating in His life. So we're staying in shape for the journey, the three spiritual exercises of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. They're necessary to salvation, attaining heaven, that is, they are life-saving, completing the eight-step program, and maintaining righteousness without hypocrisy, keeping Christ's commandments from the heart. So the three spiritual exercises, and it really begins in the, in the context of the sermon. He starts with almsgiving, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Chapter 6, verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do the charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward, that little bit of earthly recognition, but when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, that your Father who sees in secret will Himself reward you openly. And there's two key principles that we already see with respect to almsgiving that are going to apply to prayer and to fasting. You all have probably heard this before, but Jesus says, when you give alms. He doesn't say, if you give alms. It's not a suggestion. He's assuming you're going to do it. If you, wanted to, if you want to climb the stairway, this is an exercise that must be done or you won't be in shape for the journey. So he assumes you will do it and he assumes you'll do it for the right reason. Not, not for recognition, but secretly so that God sees it. Now look, if you do something for the right reason, and you do it, do it, you know, unto, uh, unto yourself before God, as it were, and of course with spiritual guidance and all these things, that the fact is, people might recognize you. If somebody recognizes you and honors you, fine. Don't do it for that reason. Don't do it for that reason. Do it for the benefit of your own soul, not for recognition, for God, not for men, for others, not for you. Now, I'm going to go back because this applies to all of them. So now I'm going to read about prayer. In verse 5 it says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. 
But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And of course, you, you, you know and I'm sure have been taught that the, word, the, the operative word there is vain. Nothing wrong with repetition. O oh Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner said many times over and over. There is something wrong with doing it vainly or as though, well, if I just say this, everything will be all right. We have to, sometimes we have to slow down. We have to think about the words. We have to think about what we are saying. Therefore, do not be like them. And again, when you pray in secret, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven. You all know the Lord's Prayer comes from the Sermon on the Mount, don't you? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You know, I might be stretching at a little point, but this is the perfect prayer for the stair climber. It's the perfect prayer for the one who wants to work the program. Because there's sort of an acknowledgement of the steps in this very brief prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. The person that acknowledges God is holy is at the same time acknowledging that he is probably less. He's recognizing his spiritual poverty. The very fact that he's praying these words, he's crying out to God, our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. He's begun to mourn a bit. It's, 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 it's almost implied in the words. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. A meek person is a person who submits his will to the will of God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And, and, you know, there is a, a notion of that word bread there, and I'm not an expert of these. It's almost something beyond temporal bread, earthly bread. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Give us this day, our day, what we need to satisfy our hunger for you. And forgive us, our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. What could be more merciful than forgiving someone? It's a greater mercy even than giving them something to eat or something to drink. And don't lead us into temptation, but de and deliver us from the evil one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. Deliver us. Lord, for on the journey, we, 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 it's perfectly good to ask to be delivered if we're suffering in His name. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And, and then he, the only part of the prayer he sort of amplifies is the forgiveness part, which I think goes to the fact is you'll never, you'll never be pure in heart 
You'll never see God and you'll never be a peacemaker. You'll never look like a Christian if you don't forgive. That's the beginning of inner peace. That's the beginning of looking like a Christian. That's the beginning of seeing God. You know, grudges get in the way of seeing God. So he adds, he comments on that line, For if you forgive in their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive in their trespasses, neither will he get forgive. But if you do not forgive in their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. And then to fasting. Jesus says, Moreover, when you fast... Do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to be fasting by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But to your Father who is in a secret place, and your Father who sees in secret, will reward you openly." You know, we just had two Sundays ago, the Sunday of the Pharisee and the publican. What, would, what did the Pharisee say? I fast twice a week. You remember? I keep the law, I do all these, and I'm, and I'm a lot better than this publican <laughs> over here. So we are to fast. It is a spiritual exercise, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, but we're to do it with that attitude of righteousness from the heart, not externally, not going through the motions, so that we can live the Christian life which is given in the Beatitudes. Now, I'm going to do this fairly quickly, and I'm going to end on this. And by the way, I forgot to say it earlier, but, you know, if you have questions, I'm going to let Father guide this, because I don't want to... We can either save them all for the end or we can ask them. And we have lots of knowledgeable people here, Father John, Father Philip, Father Basil, the deacons. So I'll try to, I'll try to answer, but, if, but, I, but I have some good help. But on this prayer of fasting and almsgiving, this is something my brother has worked on. And then I put it on a chart and showed him, and we both kind of worked on it. But it's just a little more insight into why these exercises are so important and how they relate to the teaching of the church. And the, the greatest sin, and we've sort of delineated them as the seven deadly sins, which the seven deadly sins aren't just seven sins, but they're the mother of all sins, all right? And then pride's the mother of all of them. So, so pride is sort of the mother of all sin. It is, it is the antithesis of step one in the Beatitudes. Pride does not admit its poverty of spirit. And it will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the, the principal weapon against pride is prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. You see, the acknowledgement that holiness comes from God, not from me. And, and, and the, 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 the child of pride is... Well, ooh, I'm skipping. I'm getting out. Okay, let's, let's go back. The opposite of pride. We're going to get to pride's children real quick, but we're going to go to the opposite of pride, the antithesis of pride. The thing that's produced by prayer is humility. Humility before God. All right, but pride gives birth to two chief sins. And, you know, if you read in the Fathers, they, all, they often like to talk about offspring of evil and offspring of good. So gluttony, 
is the child of pride and it is the mother of lust and of sloth. And pride's the grandparent of all these things. And the chief weapon is fasting. You know, fasting is because there's a real physical sort of reality to gut, gluttony, lust, and sloth, right? I mean, you can kind of see the correlation. So we use fasting to war against this little family over here of gluttony, lust, and pride. And a good way to understand lust or gluttony is love of ease. If you love ease, <laughs> you're a glutton to some degree, all right? And the, the antithesis of gluttony, the, the virtue that's produced by fasting is moderation. I mean, it's kind of obvious, but that's one of the seven primary virtues. And moderation is also the daughter of humility. And the antithesis of lust is chastity, and the antithesis of sloth is diligence. And I mean, again, in all those, you can see this sort of discipline of the flesh, of the body, that, that you know, a, a human being is body and soul, and we have to exercise both. Prayer exercises both. Fasting particularly targets the body. But pride also gives birth to greed, which a good way to understand that is the love of power. We love ease and we love power. And prideful people really love ease and really love power. And the weapon, or the, the offspring against greed is envy. Or excuse me. Yeah, the offspring of greed is envy and also anger. All right? Those are the, the, the two primary children. And we can see those, are, those have a real spiritual connection, right? Envy, we, you know, if we're greedy, we want, we want everything. If we're envious, we're jealous of somebody else that has more than we do. And if we're angry, we're mad because we don't have it. And the primary weapon is almsgiving. The antithesis of greed is generosity, one of the seven primary virtues. And generosity produces contentment, which is the opposite of envy. And generosity also produces gentleness or meekness, which is the opposite of anger. And, you know, every other sin in some way is connected to this. These are the, the big categories. But if we struggle with anything in the red, the stuff in the green are the weapons, the exercise to deal with it. Because if you're not dealing with it, you're not going to do the, end, the eight steps in your Attitude is going to go south. And you may find yourself, if you're in the church, just going through everything hypocritically. You know, if you think about Adam, and we'll say the first Adam, you know, he battled all these things. You know, when the devil came to Eve, he encouraged her to eat of the fruit of the tree. And she responded, God said, you know, on the day we eat thereof, we will surely die. And you know, there's a reason the devil says it's called the father of lies, because we now read in the scripture the first lie. He is the father of lies. He said, you will not surely die. Go read it. Exactly the opposite of what God said. And a matter of fact, he appealed to her pride. You will be like the most high. 
You'll be like the Most High. And he appealed to her greed. You'll be like the gods, knowing good and evil. You'll know it all. You'll have it all. And he appealed to her flesh because it says that the fruit was pleasant to look at. And she went to Adam with the message. And guess what? Adam got his pride and his greed and his gluttony appeal to as well. And so they didn't pray. They didn't ask God who was walking with them in the cool of the day, is this right? They didn't pray. And they didn't try to look after each other. Adam didn't say, don't do it, Eve. You see, they, did, they didn't show mercy, almsgiving. And Eve didn't say, I heard this, but I don't think we should do it, Adam. There was no almsgiving going. And there was no fasting. You see, it's kind of all right there in the garden. All these elements. We see them again in the Sermon on the Mount. But then comes, and by the way, they were cast out of paradise, which paradise... You know, I, I, I believe it was a place, and I believe it was a place in this earth, but ultimately what it was was fellowship and communion and a relationship to God. And they got separated from it. They got cast out, and as a result, they turned the world into a barren wilderness, and it became darkness. And Jesus Christ, the second Adam, came into the world to redo this battle but He did it in a wilderness, not in a paradise of plenty. He did it in a place of darkness. But He was the light of the world. So Christ, after His baptism, it says the Spirit of God compelled Him to go into the wilderness. And, you know, I'm not going to do these in, in order. I'm going to start with prayer. The, the, the temptation to jump off the temple was an appeal to His pride recognition, look, just jump off and they'll all believe. You see, Jesus warred all these with prayer and fasting and He was one who had always shown mercy. And then He appealed also to power because the devil said, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You'll have it all. But Jesus didn't love power. In His humanity, He was really tempted. But in His divinity, He already owned the cattle on a thousand hills. But, but he, he won this battle and Adam lost it. And He also did not turn the stones into bread. And believe me, after 40 days of fasting, bread would have been very pleasant to the eye of Jesus. But He, he fasted. Look, Jesus is not asking you to do anything He didn't do. And He did it under duress in the world as a man. And yes, He was God, but, but it says the Spirit led Him to the wilderness. It led Him in His humanity, even though in a mystery He was one with Him in His divinity. Now I also put this, and i just make a quick tongue... Just because it, it interests me, and we're kind of building out different things where you see this in the Scripture, but, you know, prayer really relates to the mind, the control of the mind and the control of the tongue, and fasting really relates to the control of the will and your hands and feet, what you do, where you go. And almsgiving really relates to the heart 
and the eyes. And I promise I'll finish on this. You know, I was re reading in uh, St. Nikolai, and, you know, my brother was sharing some of this, and, and we were looking at it. You know, you know, if you talk about the devil and the demons, you know, sometimes we give them way too much power. But for the believer, do you know what, po you know what power they have? You know what power they really have? And you kind of get this from his writings. He talks a lot about the will, the mind, and the heart. What they have is the power of observation and suggestion. Observation and suggestion. If they, if you, if they, see, you, if they see you going somewhere inappropriate, they'll suggest that you go in. That's really all the power they have. <laughs> if, if, they, if, they, if they hear you saying something you shouldn't, they'll encourage you to continue and to get angry and to escalate. And if they see you looking at something that you shouldn't, they'll encourage you to keep looking, to couple with it, to connect with it. And, you know, the, the, the hands and the feet are directly related to the will. The, the tongue is very much directed to the mind, what comes out. You know, Jesus says, not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out. And the heart is very much related kind of to the eyes. The, the also, the converse is true. Part of the role of the angels is they also have the power of observation and suggestion. So when they see you going where you shouldn't, it's don't go in there. <laughs> they deliver that message from the Holy Spirit, especially to people that are in Christ. You know, if, they, if you begin to say things you shouldn't, there's, they observe it, there's the suggestion, don't say that. Rein it in, bridle your tongue, and if they see you looking at and being absorbed at things you shouldn't, they encourage you to... Look back to Christ. Look at the icons. Look at, look at things that are true and beautiful. And the fact of the matter is, when we fast, it, it's, it, it's a discipline of the, of the will and of the hands and the feet in a way because we're supposed to do more than just fast from food. And when we pray, we're really training our mind. Our, our, our tongue begins to give words of blessing and rather than words of cursing. And when we give, when we look at people in need, when we look at our brother, we, we, our eyes are open, our hearts illumined in a unique, in a unique way. <coughs> so prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. So just a quick summary, and we'll dismiss. The first part of the Sermon on the Mount is the eight-step program. It's the, it's the stairway to heaven. It's the ladder to heaven. It's the journey that we have to take. The next part is there has to be the proper attitude. If you don't have the right attitude, you're either going to be a hypocrite or you're not going to do it at all. And if you want to stay in shape while you're making the climb, it's prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Well, God bless you. We'll go into the next section as soon as we finish lunch and you call us together. So, Father.